right, so Christmas is in full swing here, and we start the Christmas series today called He Is Our Peace. Now, I want us to focus on that last word, peace. Doesn't that just kind of feel right? Doesn't the word just feel right and feel good? And yet, that word peace for a lot of us is fairly elusive. We all want it. We all desperately want that sense of peace. We want that peace in our mind, in our heart, in our home, in our lives, in our country, in our world. We want this sense of peace. And we want that sense of peace so badly that the announcement at the birth of Christ was an announcement of peace. And we can think about you know, that Christmas morning and that Christmas event and the birth of Christ and what does it mean for God to be with us? Well, we were told what it means for God to enter this world. It's an invitation to experience peace. Luke 2.14 is the announcement, at the birth of Jesus, glory to God in the highest peace on earth and goodwill to all humankind. And this was said in the midst of a really terrible season of war and violence, right? And so here comes Jesus, the very presence of God on earth, and the announcement is an announcement of peace. And that just hits right. Now, we may not be going through you know, the Roman invasion and occupation and oppression and violence that Jesus and his family and his country went through 2,000 years ago, but there's a lot of turmoil in our world, a lot of turmoil. There are two horrific wars going on, another 30 conflicts that are just senselessly taking human lives, uh, there are all kinds of deepening divisions in our country and maybe even in our families over politics and religion and all kinds of stuff. We'll get into that a little bit today. But, but we want that sense of peace. We yearn for peace on earth, peace in our heads, peace in our hearts, peace in our relationships, peace in our family life, peace in the workplace, peace in our community, peace in our nation, and peace in the world. And that was the invitation given at the birth of Jesus and everybody wants peace, everybody does. Even the most angry people, right, want peace. As I meet with so many wonderful couples going through, say, marital problems, and, and they're fighting and they're contentious, they still want peace. It usually goes like this, oh, I definitely want peace if she'll do what I want her to do, or he'll do what I want her to do. But finding peace is so elusive, even though all of us want peace. We want peace in our nation, right? We want political parties to stop fighting. Do any of us really wanna see another negative political ad? We don't. We want peace, but it still seems to be so elusive. It's so elusive. Now, peace is the invitation of Christmas. So we're gonna spend the, the three weeks leading up to Christmas Eve talking about peace. And so today we're gonna do two things. We're gonna talk about why it's so hard to experience peace. And that's gonna be a decent chunk of time. We're gonna talk about some brain science and social science stuff. It's gonna take a little bit of time to just set the stage as to why this peace that we so yearn for is so elusive. So be patient with me as we walk that. Uh, some of you science people are gonna be like, wow, that's the most interesting thing I've ever heard in my life. Some of you are like, I thought we were talking about Jesus. We're gonna get there. Well, we have to identify the problem, right? Why is peace so elusive? And then towards the end, we're gonna talk about how we can experience peace this Christmas how we can experience peace this Christmas. And that will set the stage for our entire December leading up to Christmas Eve. So first question, why is it so hard to experience peace? Let me say first and foremost, right out of the gate, it's your brain's fault. It's your brain's fault. Our brains are the number one culprit as to why we don't experience peace. Now we can blame all kinds of other stuff. 
We can blame global affairs. We can blame politics, divisions. We can blame crazy uncle, whoever, at the last you know, Thanksgiving meal. And we can blame all kinds of stuff. Other people's circumstances, we can blame all that stuff as to why we have a lack of peace in our lives. But it is right here. It is our brains. Our brains, this three pounds of jelly inside our cranium, is masterfully wired to survive. And if we're gonna survive, we have to perceive threats, right? That's very simple. God wired our brains to survive. Our brains survive because we see threats. So we're hyper-conditioned to see threats. And because we're hyper-conditioned to see threats, we are hyper-conditioned to feel threatened. That's our brain's fault. Let me give you a little example here. I'm gonna show you a picture that's just an absolutely adorable picture. Ah, isn't that cute? Now, if our brains weren't wired to see threats, what are we gonna see there? We're gonna see a cute kitty cat hugging the cute cub, right? And if our brains aren't wired for threat, we might approach this very cute scene, okay, kitty, 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 and the lion's gonna, you know, rip your head off and feed the rest of you to the cubs, right? But our brains are wired to see threats, so as soon as we see that, we go, well, that's kind of an adorable picture, but I'm not getting anywhere near a lion. I'm not believing the best in that lion. I'm believing the worst in the lion, and I'm staying away from the lion, right? Because our brains are wired to perceive threats. If we weren't pre-wired to perceive threats, we would take that picture as absolutely adorable, cute, and I just wanna be a part of the hug, but we won't survive. Our brains are wired to perceive threats. This happens because of our amygdala. So here's a little uh, illustration of where our amygdala is. Little um, almond-sized cluster of brain cells deep in the center of our heads. This amygdala always scans for threats. This is God's little gift to keep us alive. This little amygdala in the center of our heads that is constantly scanning for threats. So everything that we see, everything that we hear, everything that we feel, all of our senses, that amygdala is always scanning for threat, threat, threat. Where's the threat, where's the threat? And that keeps us alive, it keeps us alive. Now, the reality of part of our brains constantly scanning for threats is we see way more threats than actually exist, right? Our brain is constantly looking for threat. And so let's say in this room, there may be absolutely zero threats, but my amygdala is right now going, okay, well, where could there be a danger spot? And it's always on, never off, always on. Uh, I'll tell you a little story of the time I was the most afraid for my life. And uh, you might've heard this once before, but I was walking down the hallway of our previous campus, which is right down the road on the top of the hill. And uh, just honestly, there's some creepy spots in that place. <laughs> it was built in the early 70s and it's kinda rickety in spots. And uh, I don't know, the doors don't quite work in some areas. And so I was walking down the hallway very late at night after finishing a, an event. And I see at the end of the hallway, this shadow appear and it starts walking toward me. And I thought, I'm dead, this is it, I'm gone. Somebody broke into the church which has happened before over there. And uh, I'm here by myself in the middle of the night, might have been 1 a.m., and uh, I'm a goner. This, this shadow is walking toward me, and I thought, I have to find something to defend myself. And so I bent down for a chair, and the shadow bent down. I'm like, <laughs> there's a little light over there, <clears throat> and a shadow over there. It took me about a half an hour to figure it out. Literally afraid of my own shadow. I mean, that's like a cliche, and that is me. That is your pastor's God. 
There was no threat there, but the amygdala was, was immediately thinking, that is somebody who's you know, uh, broken into the church and gonna take my life. My first thought wasn't, well, that's my shadow. Let's, let's, let's kind of go with the most obvious, probably my shadow, let's investigate. And let's see if there's a light behind me and see, no, the, the amygdala doesn't do that. The, the amygdala goes threat, 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 threat. Fight, flight, anxiety, there's no peace in that, right? It's just anxiety, right? Now, a huge number of the threats that we perceive aren't real threats, but every once in a while there is a real threat and every once in a while we are really hurt. And some of us have walked through seasons where we are really hurt, so as your brain is constantly scan, scanning for threats, there's sometimes where you know your brain was actually right and you did actually get hurt. You got hurt phys physically, you got hurt emotionally, you maybe even got hurt spiritually. And so what does that do? It just verifies in your own brain that yes, the threats are real. And so it, it verifies that you have to keep scanning for threats and maybe even scan more for threats. Someone very close to me, as you may know, went through a horrible mass shooting. And what that does to her is it verified in her brain that these threats are very real and so those threats are now heightened and everything is now a threat. And it takes a long time to heal through that and to kind of get our brain rewired to a sense of normalcy. But it's almost like, you know, missile defense system. I don't know missile defense systems. I have to learn more about that. But missile defense systems, I assume, right, they're scanning constantly. Constantly scanning the air, right? Uh, every once in a while you drive through the desert and you see these big round radar things or whatever they are, I assume I've been told those are missile defense systems constantly scanning the air. All day, every day, 24 hours a day, year after year after year. All right, 99.99999, infinity nines, nothing's happening, just planes and birds and whatever, but it's always on. Always on for that one-off chance that something is gonna be a danger and then it's gonna respond. That's our amygdala. Our amygdala in our own brains is like a missile defense system. And so we're not wired to be at peace. We're wired to be anxiously looking for threats. That's how we're wired. That's why we're here. Thank God for that, right? Thank God for that. That's why we're here as a species, right? But that amygdala starts getting a little overactive when we experience real hurts, real harm, or, and this is real important, when we are conditioned to see threats that may or may not exist. Now let's get to American culture. The other reason why we are prone to a lack of peace, and I'm just gonna rant for a little bit, it's not gonna take long, but uh, news and social media. News and social media. Let me just put it really plainly, some of you know this. Peddling fear and anxiety is how news and social media makes money. And we just need to know that, right? We just need to know that our brains are wired for anxiety, and we just need to know that news and social media is wiring our brains for anxiety. They make money off of ramping up anxiety. You don't go to social media to, to find you know, peace and tranquility in life. That may be how it starts. Oh, let's see what's going on in life. Oh, this outrage, that outrage. Oh, you looked at this article, the computers start firing away and the algorithms start firing all kinds of stuff to take you down an anxiety rabbit hole. This is going on in the world and you gotta get deeper and deeper into that anxiety. This is what the other political party is doing. You gotta get deeper and deeper into that anxiety. News feeds, social media feeds, are pushing and peddling anxious things your way intentionally so that you keep clicking and clicking and clicking because the news and social media giants know that if they can fire your amygdala for threats, you're gonna keep going and going and going into these darker and darker holes. The whole news and social media system is wired 
to trigger your amygdala and get you down into anxiety, and they make more money doing that, right? That's news and social media. <clears throat> then there's political culture. Political culture also is about tapping into our amygdala, scanning for threats. Political culture is driven by fear and anxiety, right? Uh, what does politics sell? And polit politics does not sell peace on earth. Politics sells that the other people are a danger to you, a danger to your family, a danger to our country. That's what politics is. And we already are getting bombarded with all kinds of stuff. Take a guess as to how many political ads are negative. It's about 80%. 80% of political ads are negative. Right? Most politicians aren't saying, oh, hey, look at my family and my dog and my resume and my vision. That doesn't fire the amygdala. That might actually do something positive and peaceful. That's not gonna sell, that's not gonna create clicks or donations or votes. But how threatening the other person is with this grainy black and white image of the other person with a big scowl on their face and they're ruining America and a threat to, I mean, that's just political culture and it works. The reason why all this stuff is baked in the system is because it works. Nothing works more predictably than the amygdala sitting in the center of your head and everybody knows it. Every marketer knows it, every politician knows it, every news media and social media conglomerate knows it, and they're going after us. It's just the way it is. I know that sounds a little bizarre and conspiratorial. It's full not. It's just the way the world works. It's the way the marketplace works. It's the way politics works, right? And so it ramps up anxiety. It doesn't bring peace on earth. It ramps up anxiety. Another thing that ramps up anxiety is religious culture. We've certainly spent enough time talking about that here at Rancho, and I, you know, one of my hobbies is to kind of bag on religious culture, and it kind of creates a little bit of confusion with some because this is Rancho Church. And Rancho Church, you know, sure seems like a religious institution, and there's no way around that it is, but it doesn't mean we have to get sucked into religious culture. Religious culture peddles fear and threats, it does. Every religion on earth has a system of fear and anxiety, right? Fear God. God is perfect, you are not. God is angry with our sin. God judges sin, God condemns sin. Right out of the bat, fear, anxiety. And the amygdala is saying, well, you've gotta be afraid of God himself. You've gotta fear God. And that is baked into us when we are young. God's perfect, you're not. God's holy, you're a sinner. God's gonna judge sin and condemn sin, and if you're not careful, well, you fill in the blanks. And here we go, here we go, fear and threats. Fear unbelievers, they're kind of the enemy. We're the right ones and holy ones, they are wrong, and they are sinful, and maybe they will be condemned. And fear failing God. God wants us sinless, he wants us right, he wants us holy, he wants us good. If we're not, watch out for God. He'll discipline us. This is the message, every religion on earth. God's good, you're not, do better, do better, do better, or else. It's baked into the culture of religion and politics, news media, social media, the system is triggering our amygdala, which triggers anxiety, and there is no peace. Now, Jesus had something to say about this, Matthew 23, 2. He says, the teachers of religious law crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. 2,000 years ago, there wasn't any talk of amygdala, but you can just imagine Jesus saying, hey, these religious leaders are crushing you in here. 
They're putting burdens and burdens and burdens and piling them on anxious burdens. I'm not good enough. And they don't lift a finger to help. That's just the way it is. And so there you go. <laughs> that's why there's so little peace on earth and that's why there's so little peace in so many hearts. So are we condemned to live anxiously? Are we condemned to division and fighting? Are we condemned to considering people with different opinions to be the enemy? Are we condemned to that? And I will say, and we will spend three weeks on this, I don't think we're condemned to this. I don't think we're condemned to that kind of anxiety. I don't think we're condemned to think the worst in each other. I don't think we're condemned to be in this constant state of unsettledness this constant state of what ifs and where's the threats and where's all this heading and negativity, I don't think we're condemned to that, but it's going to take work. It is going to take work to, to be free from the, the patterns and, and the societal constraints that kind of push us towards anxiety and division. It's going to take work. Now, fortunately for us, we follow Jesus and we look to Jesus. And so much of the teaching of Jesus, so much of the life of Jesus, so much of the modeling of how Jesus lived his life and showed us to live is centered on how we can experience peace. How we can experience peace. Just flip a few pages back, you know, from the birth of Jesus into the pages of, of Isaiah, and you will see this foreshadowing of one who would come who would be called the Prince of what? Peace, the Prince of Peace. One of the names of Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So for three weeks, and including Christmas Eve, we're gonna be obsessing on Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So how can we experience peace this Christmas? How can we experience peace this Christmas? We're not gonna talk about, you know, kind of fun tips and tricks for experiencing peace. We did that a little bit last month out of the book of Proverbs, and it was fine and good and helpful for a lot of people, as I've heard. But this month we're gonna talk about peace this Christmas through Jesus. He is our peace. Jesus is our peace. To reset the announcement at the birth of Jesus, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to all humankind that was given during the time of great suffering. We as Americans are not experiencing great societal suffering, yet we're still not at inner peace. So how can we experience inner peace through the Prince of Peace, I'm gonna give you just a couple ideas to think through today, just to get started for this December series. First, Jesus is our peace through a genuine knowledge of God. Jesus is our peace through a genuine knowledge of God. If we know Jesus, we know God. That's pretty much all you have to know about who God is, look to Jesus. You have any idea, any ideas about who God is, if those ideas don't align with who Jesus is in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then those ideas about God are not true. If we have ideas about God that align with Jesus, his life and his teaching, then those ideas are true. Simple as that. We look to Jesus. He's our Prince of Peace, and through him we have a genuine knowledge of God. John 14, 9 says this. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Super simple. Jesus says, you have a lot of ideas about God? Great. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You wanna know about God? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Now, before the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, before Jesus, 
there was nothing but sort of vague notions about who God might be. I'm gonna walk some careful ground here. Some of you are gonna understand really what I'm talking about. Others of you may or may not, but I look forward to future conversations here. Before the birth of Jesus, everything else were just vague notions about who God might be. Even reading the Old Testament, I wanna be careful here, so I'm gonna read this. Even reading the Old Testament, we just get a small glimpse of who the Jewish people understood God to be. The Old Testament is what the Jewish people understood God to be and what they understood that God might want. Now, I'm gonna be careful, and again, I'm gonna read it. The Old Testament is just a dark and veiled look at God, incomplete and insufficient to really know him. Which is why some of us, when we've read the Old Testament, we're going, oh, that, there's a lot there that is honestly unsettling. There's a lot there that is inspirational and powerful and wonderful, but there's a lot there that is confusing and dark and, and truly confounding, right? And so when we read the Old Testament, we have to understand we're reading sort of a dark and dim view of who God might be. Now, if you think, well, this is just Treadway doing whatever Treadway does, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.14 could not be more clear. To this day, whenever the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Jewish Scripture, to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, a veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. In other words, the Old Testament is not sufficient to understand or comprehend the truth. It's beautiful, inspired by God. It's a very complex journey between God and the Jewish people, right? It's a treasure, but it is not the pathway to understand the truth. It's a dark veil that covered not just the minds of the Jewish people, everybody before Jesus. Every people group, every religion just was trying to figure out, well, who, God, who is God and what does he want? And every religion before Jesus assumed that God was vengeant and violent, right, and retributive. Everybody thought that, including the Jewish people, and that's in the Old Testament. But what does Paul say? In 2 Corinthians 3, 14, that is not the way to understand truth. That veil from the Old Testament, that veil from every other religion on earth, that veil that existed in every people group on earth, that veil can be removed only by what? Believing in Christ. If you just have the Old Testament, if you just have any other religion on earth between, uh, uh, before Jesus, it's this dark veil trying to find God. What, who are you and what do you want? And everybody's trying their best to figure him out. And every bit of that is driven by fear. Every bit of that is driven by anxiety. Well, God must be perfect, I am not. God's a judge and I'm, I'm gonna be judged for my sin. There's condemnation there and it's, then it gets tribal. Well, we're right and they're wrong. All of that, all of that creates anxiety until the Prince of Peace comes and the veil is lifted and the darkness is lifted. And who do we see in Jesus? We see Jesus, who described himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, I am humble and gentle at heart, offering rest for your souls. This Prince of Peace says, here I am, <laughs> and I am the fullness of the Father. Everything you thought God was, all you have to do is look at me. The light of heaven, no longer veiled in darkness, the light of heaven, I'm telling you who God is. I'm showing you who God is. I am humble 
and gentle at heart. And what do I offer? Rest, rest, peace, peace. It's amazing, amazing. So Jesus does our peace through a genuine knowledge of God. Jesus is also our peace through a genuine union with God. So there's a difference between knowing God through Jesus, right? God is gentle and humble in heart and God wants rest for our souls. Okay, through Jesus, he is our peace. We are peaceful knowing that, that God is a God of peace. But more than that, Jesus is our peace through a genuine union with God, an actual, legitimate union, a oneness with God. Jesus brings that. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been made right with God in his sight, by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. I'm gonna read that again a little slower. And ask yourself, well, what did we do to earn a union with God? And the answer is gonna be nothing, zero, zip, nada, nothing. We don't do anything to earn union with God. It's something God just does and it's free and it's a gift through Christ. Let me read it again. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. We're just the recipient of God's work. And what's God's work? To bring us in a union with God, a genuine union with God freely as a gift through Jesus. God just gives us union with him. He just gives us peace with God. Now, before Jesus, we're fighting with God and thinking God is fighting with us. God wants us good. He wants us right. He wants us free from sin. He wants us to meet all of his standards, and he's angry if we don't. That's pre-Jesus, pre-Jesus. We now see Jesus, and we see that he is gentle and humble, and we see God as a God of peace, and then he goes off and tells us, oh, and by the way, You have a perfect union with God. Just by grace, just gave it to you. Here you go. That's pretty cool. That's what we call gospel. That's what we call good news. That I'm good with God. I'm good with God, period, no matter what. I'm good with God whether or not I feel close to God. I feel good with God whether or not I am faithful. I feel I'm good with God whether or not I get things right or wrong. I'm good with God even if I'm good or bad. I'm good with God no matter what. It's his gift of grace given to us And when we believe it, I'm telling you, peace can really start to rise. Peace can really start to rise. Listen to 2 Timothy 1.9. I think it's my personal favorite in the whole Bible. God saved us and God called us to a different way of life. He did this, not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. He just does it. He saves us, he forgives us, he embraces us, he loves us. He says, I'm proud of you. You're my daughter, you're my son. In my eyes, you're perfect. Just all, that's just good gospel, good news. That's the message. It's a message of peace with God. And not everybody believes they're just good with God by grace. People believe, I would say most people believe they've gotta do something. They've gotta be right, they've gotta believe the right things, they have to do right, repent of all the sins, confess the sins, get better, be a better human being. They gotta do all this stuff before they really believe they're one with God. And and that is such a shame, that is such a tragedy that this morning on a Sunday morning there are so many churches that are peddling fear again and peddling anxiety again and peddling division with God and God's angry at us and condemning the world and all this normal religious stuff, not living in the freedom and the peace 
of knowing we're united with God purely by his grace, he just did it. Third and finally, Jesus is our peace through a genuine relationship with God. Not just knowing God, not just a union with God, but a genuine relationship with God. Now, for those of you who tend to be more relationally wired or more emotionally wired, this is like your jam. You might have been raised with this real sense of warmth and relationship with God through Jesus. Uh, some of you may speak in terms of, yeah, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, uh, and it is just an incredible part of your life experience, and, um, and that is just wonderful. Keep living into that. Keep living into that sort of emotional, relational uh, connection with God through Jesus. It's a genuine relationship with God. I love 1 John uh, 3.1. It's just so intimate and so close. See how very much our Father loves us. For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. It's the simplest Greek language. It's like preschool-level Greek language in 1 John. That's why I love 1 John. It's just so, so simple. No complex theological treaties, you know, just simple. Do you realize <laughs> that God just loves you so very much? And he calls us to be his children, and that's just what we are. It, it's just so beautiful and so simple. This is this relationship with God through Jesus. Not just a knowledge, not just a union, but a genuine relationship with God through Jesus. And isn't that, again, the announcement at the birth of Christ? Not just that he's the Prince of Peace, but why is Jesus the Prince of Peace? Get this. Matthew 1, 23. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a relationship. With God through Jesus, God is with us. He's not just shouting from the heavens. He's with us on earth, wrapped in human flesh, experiencing all the suffering and the burdens of this world to the point of crucifixion, the burdens of this world and the brokenness of the world. You could call it the sin of the world. Even crushed Jesus, the very son of God, God with us. That's how much he is with us. Not just shoulder to shoulder, but experiencing the pain and suffering and even death of this world and the oppression and the violence of this world. He experienced it all, God with us. And, and so if your life is going well, there's a genuine relationship with God and, and Jesus is with you person to person, soul to soul, spirit to spirit. But when your soul is crushed and when your spirit is crushed and when you're going through a terrible situation, you can also know that Jesus is by your side and by his spirit, he is with your spirit and he's also gone through crushing. He's also gone through loneliness and pain and loss. He's also gone through physical suffering and faced death itself there's a genuine relationship with God through Jesus, through Jesus. For those of you who tend to be a little more cerebral, not necessarily so emotional, but a little bit more cerebral, you may not feel so much the presence of God. You may have a lot of questions in your mind about, okay, God in human flesh, I got some questions, right? Uh, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, being, being the full expression of God, I, I've got some questions. Some things in the Bible, I, I've got some questions, right? You're a little more cerebral, so you, know, you wanna think through some things. And I get that, and I probably more in, in your camp, to be honest. And, and, and so can we have a relationship with God through Jesus, even if we're wired a little more cerebral and we don't understand what this kind of invisible God, how this invisible God sort of relates with our invisible soul and our spirit, and we've got some questions and we wanna wrestle through those things, 
And we might feel as though or think as though that we might not have as much of a relationship with God as the more emotionally driven people over there, and we might think we're kind of less than because we have questions. Um, I want you to know, for those of you who are a little more cerebral, for those of you who might even categorize yourself as skeptics, and you might say, I don't know if I'm down with all this stuff that I've heard growing up or even all this stuff that, you know, Dreadway's talking about now. I've got a lot of questions. Just know that doesn't change anything about God's relationship with you. And it shouldn't alienate you from genuinely believing you have a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Sometimes relationships are more emotional, feely. It's great. Enjoy it, right? Scripture's all about that. But sometimes relationships tend to be a little more cerebral and tend to be, you know, a little more, hey, matter of fact, and I've got some questions, and let's discuss. That's great, too. I'm going to close with this little story here. We, uh, we bought a house years ago, and it just happened to have a, a spa, you know. And we weren't looking for a house with a spa. It just happened to have a spa. And I thought, okay, well, that's going to be just a lot of money keeping it up and the power bill and all that stuff, and we'll probably never use it. And I was hopeful that we might use it. We used it a few times, and then we kind of got addicted to it, not just because, you know, we like sitting outside in warm water, which is not half bad, but because of the conversations that are happening in that spa. And so we tried two or three times a week to just pile in the spa, and as many kids are at home, just get in the spa, because we just have, you're all face-to-face, and you just talk. And, and I think in our fast-paced culture, maybe there's fewer and fewer times for that, and so we enjoy those times. And as our kids, you know, we're a little bit younger, as we're talking about just life in general and just small talk and nonsense, every once in a while, some real gnarly question would hit the hot tub, and I am like all up for that. <laughs> I got excited. So my kids would ask something like, here's one of the famous ones, what are stars? And I'm like, oh, I'm so excited about that question, I can't even contain myself. And I'm just ready to like give all kinds of knowledge on these kids. I love cosmology, astronomy, but I know if I just overwhelm them, they're just gonna go, okay, there's dad going off again. And uh, I would ask him, do you really wanna know, you know some stuff? And I don't know everything, but I know enough to have a little conversation about you know, cosmology and stars and nature of light and all that stuff. And, and so I just give him little, little bits of information. And for my youngest daughter in particular, sometimes she gets kind of overwhelmed with the size and scope of the cosmos and she just needs a break from the conversation. And you can just kind of tell, and then no problem. And in my brain, I'm thinking, oh, she has so many wonderful things to learn about the nature of life and, and the universe. And then I know I have so much to learn about the nature of life and the universe. And so I kind of imagine, as giddy as I am about how much my kids have to learn and grow, God, our Heavenly Father, is just as giddy looking at me and us. Oh, this is so cute. You've got so many questions, and you get so many things wrong. I can't wait for you to keep learning more and more and more as you go into this life and as you go into eternity. If I may be really corny, we're in a spa, and we've got questions, and we don't know so much. But God is there just enjoying the journey of growing up. And so if you are living with any anxiety about, well, where do I stand with God? Or you, you just have recognized that, that you might be living in some state of anxiety just culturally and, and some of the experiences in your life, you know, don't let your relationship with God be the source of one bit of anxiety in your life. Just know he's in that spa looking at you with a big old smile. He can't give you more than, you know, <laughs> a little bit at a time as we grow. 
And listen, he knows we've done some things wrong and he knows we're getting some stuff wrong, but he's just excited about your journey and he's excited about my journey and that should give us some peace. That should give us some peace. He is our peace. We're gonna close in a final song and I'm gonna ask uh, Delaney to come on out. And um, we've done the song twice, I think, all right? Did you bring this to us or did David? Because it's only one of you two. David, always. David. All right, so this is all David. Um, not always, you have brought to us a lot of good songs. This song is about peace, particularly using the analogy of water and storms and the deep, right? Yeah, yeah, it says dancing in the deep. And the deep to me sometimes, like when we feel like we're just in the trenches of life. And when it says to dance in the deep, it means that we could just find joy in those really hard times because we have peace knowing that God is with us in yeah. those hard times. So there are deep moments, there are waves, as the song says, and there are storms. And it's not denying that sometimes life is a little difficult and sometimes there are real threats. But in the midst of that, we can enjoy that God is with us uh, through Jesus. We know God, have a union with God, have a relationship with God, and we can just enjoy that this Christmas. So, so good. lead us on. Go ahead and stand to your feet, yes. and we're gonna sing the song together. If you know it, feel free to sing it loud. Gonna be afraid. 